welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast that's created exclusively for people who are pursuing donor conception or have donor-conceived children. I'm your host, Lisa Schumann. As a researcher, therapist, and an expert in donor conception, I'm passionate about helping people on their donor conception journey. After decades of work in the field, working on site at some of the best fertility clinics, and through my group, the Center for Family Building, I have run workshops for donor-conceived children and have met with thousands of donors and recipients. I can share the tools and the truths I have learned to help you get the information that you need to have a better path to parenthood or help you tackle tough parenting issues. If it's about donor conception, we are going to talk about it. I hope you enjoy the episode. And today, I am lucky enough to have Elizabeth Grill, who's a dear, dear friend and a colleague, and I'm so grateful to have her here today. She is the Director of Psychological Services at the Ronald O. Perlman and Claudia Cohen Center for Reproductive Medicine and Associate Professor of Psychology in the Departments of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She's also an assistant attending psychologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She's experienced as a counseling psychologist and medical researcher with a special focus on the emotional aspects of infertility, IVF treatment, third-party reproduction, oncofertility, fertility preservation, sexual dysfunction, and stress and infertility. She is the president for the Society for Sex Therapy and Research and secretary and chair for Resolve, the National Infertility Organization. Dr. Grill is also co-owner of Ferticom and Strong, the first digital app developed to treat daily stressors faced by individuals and couples experiencing infertility using research-proven modalities. Thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Dr. Grill. Thanks for having me. That was a mouthful. It's a mouthful, yes, <laughs> it's a mouthful, but well worth it. I'm so happy to have you here. For many of you um, who don't know Dr. Grill, she is a leader in our field and a very dear friend of mine, so I'm yeah. very, very happy to have you here today, Liz. I'm so happy to be here. This is great. Can you start telling us a little bit about yourself, some things that maybe you'd like the audience to know? Sure. I mean, you said a lot of it. I've been the director of psychological services, I think, for over 20 years at Cornell. Uh, I started there as a fellow, postdoctorate fellow, and never left. So it's sort of an extended family. And then have dabbled into lots of other things. So I did postdoctoral work in the human sexuality program at Cornell, um, and then have expanded that practice to treat both people in the fertility space who suffer with sexual dysfunction, which is most people who are struggling to conceive, and then outside of that as well, in terms of just general human sexuality issues that come up. And then in my spare time, I developed this incredible app, uh, Ferticom, and it's our brother, Strong, with my business partner, Ali Domar, and it's sort of our passion projects. So we realized that very few people, as you know, utilize psychological services, which is a shame because we know the stress levels of people going through this are so high with anxiety and depression, but yet, for whatever reason, the majority of those people don't access the kind of support and care that we know they need. So we really wanted to develop something that met them where they were at. And we know now everyone's on their phones 24-7. People live staring down at their phones. So we wanted to give them something that could help them in the moment that they were feeling the distress related to their family building. So we developed Ferticom and Ferdistrong that does that. And it really helps with coping strategies in the moment that they're feeling any kind of distress. 
So I think those are the, you know, three big areas. Oh, and then you mentioned I'm, I'm now the new chair of Resolve, which I'm very proud of as well. Very exciting. An incredible organization. Yes. And in fact, we're going to um, be airing this in National Infertility Awareness Week. And so Great. you're going to be leading the charge there, which is really amazing. Yeah. Huge week for us. Definitely. So on the heels of that, I'm wondering about, you've had so much experience both in practice and through really trying to disseminate the best information through your apps about stress and infertility. And part of that, I think, is something that Resolve speaks to a lot, which is apart from the information that they provide regarding how to deal with your stress, they also provide lots of ways to gain support and community. And since we're talking about donor conception in this podcast, I think it's really a very relevant issue. I think it's so important for people to really think about that they're not alone. And although donor conception is much more common than it used to be, it still could be very isolating, particularly for people who've already had infertility and felt isolated and then pursue donor conception after that and then continue to have those feelings. So I thought maybe you could start a little bit by talking about that and what your thoughts are about that evolution for people, because you see that all the time. Yeah. I mean, you named it, right? The trauma that people go through, whether they're coming off of a cancer diagnosis, where they're heading straight to third party, you know, donor egg um, or donor sperm or gestational carrier, or they're coming off of years of trying, or they're just new and, you know, maybe met their partner late in life, or they decide they want to have a child on their own and they come to the space and realize that they may need to turn to third party. And so any way that you get there, it's stressful and it's traumatic, right? So the need for support around that is really critical. We know that it causes such isolation and shame and distress and anxiety, and it's all normal. People think they're going crazy until they realize, oh no, this is normal. It's normal to feel this way. Because anytime you're grieving plan A, there's loss associated with it. There's feelings of being out of control and there's loss. And so however you get there, you're reconciling the fact that you're not where you thought you'd be at this point in time, whether it's because of health issues or because you didn't find a partner or because, you know, you found a partner too late in terms of your reproductive organs agreeing with your decision to find a partner later in life. And so you're, you're reconciling that sense of loss that how did I get here? Why are all my friends in a different place than I am? This isn't what I wished and desired growing up when I dreamed about how I was going to build my family. So all of those things need to be dealt with before people can move on to plan B, which is a good plan. It's a great plan. It's a plan of empowerment and you know, freedom and joy and hopefulness, but you can't just jump the steps of grieving the loss and get to that other place. So it's very hard to hold on to both of those sets of emotion, right? Loss and hopefulness. They don't often go together, but that's really the struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Those are wonderful points. I'm wondering if you can, you know, kind of help the audience know what you experience is something that they're probably going to be familiar with, right? You see these patients come into your office and they're dealing with infertility problems and they're having all of these feelings of stress and loss. And then they're starting to think, oh my gosh, now I have to use a donor to conceive. And so of course there's the pain and the grief and the loss and all of that. And then they also have to move into another area where they may feel even more isolated. Like, you know, am I going to tell my friends and family and I feel embarrassed about that. And 
that transition, I think, is really underappreciated for people because there's so much push to just get pregnant or so much push to educate yourself that I think people don't really appreciate that. Yeah, people need to take their time. I feel like, especially coming off of years of, let's say, IVF, if that's the if that's the journey and the pathway that they're getting to third party from, I think there's this obsessiveness almost, like what's next, what's next, what's next? You know, when can I start again? When am I going to get my period? When can I come in for my day two? And so there's that sense of, okay, well, now we need donor egg. Now we need donor sperm. Let's just get to that spot and let's just move forward. And so slowing it down, you can, you can do that because as we know, some of these wait lists are long for donor egg or for surrogacy. So you can still parallel process it, right? You can still move forward logistically mm-hmm. with those next steps, but emotionally really press the pause button and allow yourself to experience, get help, get support, talk to friends, talk to a therapist, talk to clergy, reach out to resolve. They have support groups you can join where you're not isolated in this. And really take your time understanding and validating and appreciating that there's a lot of emotion that comes along with this. You don't have to jump. You can't jump that phase. It'll catch up with you if you try and sweep it under the rug. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that that it's so difficult for people to come off the heels of infertility, be in such pain and be grieving and have such a hard time and really appreciate how hard it is now then to think about? I've got to choose a donor and go through this process. And that might be very hard and isolating for me, but there's very little appreciation for that in many ways. Yeah. People don't know what to do with it. It's kind of like the loss when you suffer a miscarriage, right? There's no hallmark card for that. You know, you don't just go to the store and say like, okay, look in the aisle or it says need to choose donor gametes and grieve the loss of my own genetic tie. Right. So people are in it alone not knowing what to do until they get on with a professional or into a support group where suddenly they they see they're not alone, right? That's the power of these support groups or meeting with a therapist trained in this area is that it's very validating and they realize that everything they're experiencing is totally normal. They're not in it alone. They don't have to feel ashamed of it. But it's so tough because they've been through so much already. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, feel like you're disappointing yourself, your partner, your relatives, your friends, everyone around you, you feel like you're letting everyone down by not being able, you feel like your body's failing you, you feel like a failure. So all of those deep-seated feelings get triggered that people have probably already been dealing with through the IVF process or the IUI process, wherever they've been. And how do you find that patients start to come out of that, start to either pursue help or get a community or start to allow themselves to have their feelings or maybe even realize that they're not at fault, that this is not their fault, that they're not doing something wrong or don't feel so humiliated about it? Well, I think a lot of people can get stuck if they don't reach out for help. You know, I think they don't know where to turn. They don't realize they even need the help. And so they try and bury it and just sort of push through and get through it. So I think just acknowledging that there are people out there in organizations like Resolve out there that can really offer that kind of support. You don't have to be alone. I mean, the struggling is hard enough. To struggle alone is even harder. And if you are partnered and in a relationship with someone, setting the expectations where you really feel like your partner should be there to answer all your prayers and to read your mind and to offer all the support is not um, realistic, you know, because they're going to be suffering on their own level. There's losses that they're going to be experiencing as well, even though they may be different than the person who has to choose the donor who has to Mm -hmm. receive the donor. So 
So realizing that, you know, yes, couples work can be tremendously helpful to get people united and on the same page and working together, but realizing that you may need to also rely on other people to get that support. So you don't burden the relationship or the marriage or strain what is going on there as well is really important. Yeah. And that happens so much. I mean, I'm sure you see that so much where people feel like my partner just doesn't understand how hard this is for me and they don't see how painful this is. I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm defective in some way. Yeah. And everyone grieves differently and you have to give people permission to grieve in their own way. There's no right or wrong way. I mean, there's wrong ways in terms of choosing poor behavioral habits, let's say, to grieve. We don't want people turning to drinking or drugs or overeating or smoking and those types of things. But in general, you know, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And so your partner may be grieving in a completely different way that's also totally acceptable, but may not be meshing with what you need in that moment. And so that's important to to give people the space to grieve in the ways that they need to. And, you know, like male factors is very complicated, right? Because guys also feel the shame. We often talk a lot about just, you know, the women and the shame that women feel, but if it's male factor, women can get very angry that this is happening, but they can't express their anger to their partner because they don't want to make the situation worse. And so mm-hmm. then they become isolated in their rage and anger and feel guilty if they express it. And then men who may have to choose a backup donor sperm or donor sperm just to move forward with anything, you know, they are feeling a tremendous sense of responsibility, that kind of primitive rage of like shame. You know, I can't, I can't get my partner pregnant or I don't have anything to offer my partner. Maybe my partner's going to leave me. And men often don't have friends that they can turn to, to talk to about it. And so they really kind of become inward facing and silent. And so that's just an example of the nuances of how complicated this stuff is. All the emotional pieces that are involved when someone's told you may need a donor. And so do the men eventually um, reach out for support? Do they go to places like Resolve or do, do you feel like they mostly depend upon their partners for all of that? They tend to reach out less. I think the new research is showing that the men are suffering just as much as the women. I think we used to really feel like it was just the women. And now we're showing that there's a lot of suffering going on with the male partners as well. We Mm -hmm. did a very small randomized controlled trial study with Ferto Strong, which is for men and partners. It showed definitely that when they did use the tools, they did better. They felt less distress levels when the tools were available to them. So we know it helps. Resolve has a support group for men. In the past, when I used to run support groups, you know, it was very hard to fill the the male groups. I still think there's a lot of shame around it. But then you talk to some men that are very eager, you know, like they'll say all the services revolve around women, you know, and I don't have anything for me. There's plenty of support groups and therapy and, you know, websites available for my partner, my female partner, but not for me. So it's tough, but that's getting better. That's great. As they start to move forward, do you see that this process of coming to terms with it and feeling less isolated starts to get better as they connect with friends and family? Or do you feel like it's just so overwhelming to feel alone? And of course, you know, you have, you know, in the media, all these celebrities get pregnant, you know, at 50 something years old. Right. With those images. Yeah. Right. Right. And so people still feel like, well, it must just be me. That's, you know, I've got this sea of people probably, you know, in the waiting room, but I feel like I'm the only one, right? I'm the only man who has a sperm problem, or I'm the only woman who's 50 years old who can't get pregnant, right? 
Well, that's the power of groups, of course, because you're placed in groups where you see other people struggling in the same ways or similar ways that you are and you realize you're not alone. So it's very powerful to be sitting in a room of people who are expressing the same sense of loss and despair and hopelessness um, and struggle that you are. But therapy as well. I mean, I find the two things that are the most helpful are the validation because then people don't feel like they're going crazy. You know, you start to just say simple things that you and I say all the time because we've been doing this for so long. So it's so obvious to us, but it's not obvious to people that are suffering. So suddenly you start to tell them, you know, about our clinical experience and the research and that people experience the same levels of distress as people who are diagnosed with terminal illnesses. We know from Ali Domar's, you know, study long yeah. ago and from Laurie Pash's work about the levels of, you know, anxiety and depression that exist in both men and women, clinical ranges of depression and anxiety, not just, oh, I'm having a bad day or I'm blue. So we have all this amazing research that we can quote to our patients and provide to them, as well as our clinical experience that helps them understand, oh, wow, and helps partners understand, you know, like, oh, so she was staying in bed for a couple of days after she got her period and crying all morning and couldn't get out of bed. And so that's normal. I shouldn't push her. She's allowed to feel that way. Like giving people permission to feel as lousy as they are, but then giving them the tools to start to cope better with it and pull out of it. And I think those two things together, the validation of the despair, and then the tools to help them cope with a way forward are, I think, two of the most powerful things that I've seen for people at this stage. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so important. And when you do have the world around you, your best friend's getting pregnant, no problem. And this celebrity is getting pregnant at 50 and all of the whole world seems to be having no problem and you feel like you're the only one. It is so important to have both of those things. I completely agree with you. What do you find that patients now are feeling most these days? Do you think they're feeling most difficulty kind of taking that step forward to use a donor or do you feel like they're having more difficulty actually dealing with the logistics of it or with their partners? What are you seeing most of? I think it depends on the person. I really think it depends on the person and the couple and where they've been. I mean, they need to tell their own story. Everyone's on their own journey. So unpacking the person's story, you know, you're probably the same. In a day, we can see someone who is single coming to terms with the fact that they want to try and have a child on their own, which wasn't part of their plan. Someone who just um, broke up or got divorced and suddenly finds themselves at 40 without a child and is trying to figure out whether they should freeze their eggs and try and find a partner or have a child, mm -hmm. you know, a couple that's been trying for three to five years and is finally facing, you know, their last IVF trial while also looking down the path at donor egg or a man going in for Tessie, right? And testicular extraction and, and reconciling whether he should have donor backup or just wait and see what happens, right? So I think everyone's got their own story to tell. I mean, the themes are the same as we know in terms of loss and feeling out of control and despair and hopelessness and trying to, you know, grieve the loss of potentially not having a genetic tie to offspring. But everyone's story has to be taken in, in as its own and unpacked to, I think, understand what their particular needs are. The general themes are, of course, grieving the loss of that genetic tie. I mean, that's the big task. Yeah. And as you said, that's so different for so many people, right? Some people feel badly about that alone, or maybe they feel badly about that and not giving their mother a grandchild that's related to them, or because they feel badly that they're not the same as their, their friends. As you're saying, there's so many different circumstances, and all of these circumstances really 
are helped so much by having that community that you're providing at Resolve to be able to connect with people, to feel validated, as you said, to be able to see that information, say, oh, yes, I'm not, that's not just me. I'm not just going crazy. Do you think that things are changing, though, with this, you know, the idea of isolation? Do you think that over some time, maybe the celebrities will start to talk about their donor conception story or more people will start to reveal what's happened, you know, with their infertility journey more readily than they have been? I don't know. I mean, I think people are still entitled to their privacy, right? We even tell our patients in terms of disclosure that you don't have to go shout it from the rooftops. You don't have to tell everyone right away. You know, you can take your time with who gets to know and when they get to know. Disclosure to the child, of course, is a totally different path and and road. But in terms of like friends and family, So again, I think it depends on the person because some people aren't really tied to their genetics. I've had some people that are like, I'm just so thrilled to still be able to have a child together or to still carry a child or deliver a child or breastfeed a child, you know, whatever those connections are, the epigenetic connection of having the child develop inside of their uterus and inside their body. It's not as much of a loss for some. And so taking that leap to that next level, that next phase isn't that bad. And then I've had some people that will just weep and weep and weep through session after session because that genetic tie and that family lineage and that feeling of being able to, you know, look at their child and see a reflection of themselves looking back at them. And all of those fantasies and images are so powerful or the pressure they're getting, like you said, from relatives who are saying, you know, well, is this really going to be my child? And I'm not going to see the reflection of our family lineage in this child. So it really depends on family dynamics and you know, and, and family donation is someone using a sister or a brother, or are they doing anonymous? Are they doing directed donor? There's so many different variations that you really have to assess each story, you know, separately to understand. Yeah. And we're certainly seeing a lot more of that, right? People donating to friends or family. And we certainly hope that people do that safely. And I think, you know, all of you at Cornell do a great job of being so careful about helping these patients think through the implications of these decisions that are so, so very complicated. And those things I think once used to be so taboo, right? And now it seems like, I don't know what your experience is, but it seems like it's feeling much more comfortable for people to say to their friend, hey, I'd like you to donate to me or to my sister or somebody in my family because I need eggs or sperm. Yes, but I often tell people the best laid plans of adults don't necessarily translate into what's in the best interest of the child and the offspring. So I'm lucky, like you said, to work at a place like Cornell where they have three psychologists, which I think is unheard of around the world. Yeah. And they really appreciate the ethical and psychological complexities of these types of arrangements. And so we do case by case, you know, because sometimes people will come in and they have all of these, they have all the plans completely ironed out, right? And it's all so crystal clear to them about how the co-parenting is going to be and how visitation is going to be and where they're going to live and what they're going to do and how. And then suddenly you start to discuss the fact that babies become toddlers and toddlers become adolescents and adolescents become young adults Mm -hmm. and that suddenly they have a voice and they have something to say. And appreciating that trajectory, I think is really hard for people who are just desperate to have a child and are putting together all these different pieces so nicely to try and do it. 
But I think that's where we come in, right? That's our job is to slow it down a bit and say, okay, so let's just look at this from all angles and how will a child feel? What's the narrative going to look like when you tell a child about this arrangement? And how is it going to look if the child says this or that? Or So it's, it's an important piece for people trying to build their families in all these various ways to really understand the complexities and the effect it may have on offspring later on. And I think that's yeah. how our fields really changed. I don't think we used to focus so much on that. It was the intended parents, the intended parents, the intended parents. Everything exactly. has now shifted as it should to both the intended parents and the offspring. Right. Right. Yep, absolutely. And their relationship and what's that going to mean for the future? Because as we know, even in a situation where the donor is not directed, the donor is not known to the individual, to the recipient, eventually it will be open some way or another to the child, to the parents, to somebody, to a sibling. It's not possible to be anonymous anymore. So we have to think about those things. And you're right. People want to get pregnant, understandably, for so long. And it's very hard for them to start to think about what's it going to be like in the future. These people are going to be in my life in some way, or way, shape, or form. And how do I handle that? And that's really another thing I think that would be so helpful for people to, if anybody else there is listening to this, to think about because Resolve is a great place to get support to talk about that too, to think about what's the future going to be like and toss around some of those ideas and feelings in a safe space. Yeah. I mean, Resolve is amazing. I mean, obviously I'm biased. I've been on their board, I think eight years um, and now as chair and they're really the only patient organization that really exists to provide both access to care and access to coverage, but also community and support, right? You don't see a lot of organizations that do both of those things. So they have access to education and awareness about all family building options. And so it's not just about support, right? They're out there fighting the fight. You know, since, since they overturned Roe versus Wade, you know, there was this huge campaign that we started in 2023 called Fight for Families that's out there doing the work, you know, on the ground in the states that are really being threatened by, by this piece being, by this law being overturned and really out there doing the work to make sure that these families are protected in these states. And so, you know, of course I came into Resolve as a support group leader. And so my passion as a psychologist is really the support piece, but I'm always amazed at the unbelievable work they do in terms of the advocacy work. I was just reading through something that said, I think they said in tw- since 2019, 31 million Americans have either new coverage or extended and expanded coverage from what they had since 2019, just based wow. on the state advocacy work and the coverage at work program that Resolve offers. And that's a staggering number. So I think sometimes even people even forget about the support side, you know, not the patients, but behind the scenes resolves doing all this other federal and state advocacy work that's just incredible but that you should check out anyone that's listening should check out their website resolve.org because the amount of education that is on there is incredible right just on the website and then if you want to access a support group you can access it through there too so it has the lists and and they're doing virtual and in person so there's the mix now i think we're all used to sort of a much more uh, virtual platform now since covid but they have returned to doing some in-person live groups as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Great. And we will have um, Barb Kalora, who's head of Resolve and has been for a long time on too, to talk about the advocacy work and all of the wonderful things. Boy, 
you know, you have your work laid out for you, Liz. Yeah. This is, uh, it's an exciting and important time to be taking on this responsibility with overturning of Roe versus Wade, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But Resolve is well positioned because I think they're heading almost into their 50th birthday almost, mm-hmm. uh, 50th anniversary since it's, I think 1974 was when it was created. And so it is well positioned to do this, this work because it's been an advocacy group for so long that it knows how to get out there and make sure that we're protecting the rights of all people to get the care they need reproductively. Well, let's hope so. As my father would say, from your lips to God's ears. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. And on that note, I think we're going to wind down, but thanks so much for coming. I'm so happy to see you as my dear friend and colleague and, um, you know, coming president of Resolve and you've done such amazing things for our community. I really, really appreciate all your work, Liz. And thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. And for everyone who's out there, um, please rate and subscribe because that's the way that we keep going. And that's the way that you'll continue to hear about new episodes. So thanks so much for coming. And if you would like to reach out to Dr. Grill for anything, how can people reach? My email's great. EAG2001 at med.cornell.edu. Well, thanks so much for coming and tune in next time.